is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 27, 2021. I got tremendous reaction to last week's show. Colorado Springs was the title. But I realized we spoke a lot about Boulder and CU and Jean Benet. And his name came up last week, the Boulder DA, Michael Doherty, just got reelected and he's back for his third visit too. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Dave Cunders makes his weekly contribution and more. He offers a beautiful song called My Ska Brother. Hear what that's about. And then he and I went to the movies. We reviewed the movie he recommended, Trumbo. Talk about CU, although it's not part of the movie, but it's part of Dave and Craig review the movies. Check out this feature where Dave is asked to watch my favorite comedy, The Heartbreak Kid, with Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepard. Did he like it? I'm not going to ruin it for you. Find out. A big part of this show's success is our primary sponsor, Michael Bailey, and he returns to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And we have a very funny discussion about him refereeing high school basketball this year with everybody wearing masks, including the referees. And he had to give a technical. Well, you have to hear it to believe it. It's fun with Michael Bailey. I have fun supporting Nikola Jokic for MVP. I think he's a worthy recipient. The guy can score, he can pass, he can rebound. He's clutch, he's a good person, and he's part of our Denver Nuggets. I'm a homer. I'm writing my Colorado Sun column about that. And even though I'm disgusted with the Nuggets right now because I can't watch them on Comcast, I find my ways. Yes, video streaming. I find my ways. In any event, what about you? Do you like the Joker for MVP? Why not show your support by going to the website, jokerformvp.com, or Jokic, J-O-K-I-C, or J-O-K-E-R. Did you see the game against Portland where he scored over 40? Got a technical for telling the ref, hey, are you laughing at me? Are you effing laughing at me? I guess it was a question. It got him a technical. But how funny is that for a guy named the Joker to be making a comment like that? Here's the thing. I'm sitting here right now on a cold Colorado winter's day in my long sleeve Joker for MVP t-shirt. It fits wonderfully. It's warm. You can get short sleeve. You can get long sleeve. You can get the color you like. And guess what? 100% of the profits go to the Colorado Hawks. They are a great organization that helps underprivileged kids achieve athletic goals in basketball and soccer, but it's mainly about education. 
Colorado Hawks. They are the nonprofit recipient. And I like their basketball players. I like the guy who runs the Joker for MVP.com site. You will love the t-shirts. What a great gift-giving idea. And it's in the Joker's native tongue. Very creative designs. Check it out at jokerformvp.com. Now, Boulder DA, Michael Dorton. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, this is great to be able to talk to Mike Doherty again. He was a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge July 1, 2017. February 24, 2018, almost three years later, a little more, Michael Doherty returns. He's now the veteran Boulder DA. Michael, welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Good morning, Craig. It is great to be back, and thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to our discussion this morning. Tell us how you've weathered this pandemic. It's tough, isn't it? Well, it's certainly been a difficult and challenging time for so many people in Colorado and, of course, all around the world. I'm really grateful to the amazing staff here at the district attorney's office and for the health of my family. So with those two things as the the pillars that I lean on, I feel really grateful to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm so excited for us as a nation to move through this pandemic and to get on the other side of it. And the cool thing for people who haven't heard you before, they can detect a slight accent. And the reason why I think the Boulder DA's office is in great hands and why we are talking to a star, not just in the legal world in Colorado, but this guy's going places. Mike Doherty, tell us where you got that accent that we hear. Well, that's very kind of you to say, uh, Craig, and I, I really, all the credit goes to the staff here at the district attorney's office and to my predecessor, Stan Garnett, who was a terrific DA. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York, grew up on Long Island, and then moved back to Brooklyn. And I served at the Manhattan district attorney's office as a prosecutor there for roughly 13 years before moving to the great state of Colorado and starting on a wrongful conviction project that the attorney general had secured a federal grant to start up. And my family and I never looked back and we're so grateful to be living and working in Colorado. Wow, 13 years in New York City. Tell us about your role. I was 16 years prosecutor in Denver. Did we have similar experiences? I was mainly prosecuting violent criminals toward the end. What about you? Yes, we did have very similar experiences. I was hired by Robert Morgenthau, the district attorney at the time, and I started in the trial division and handled violent cases, specialized in sex crimes and homicides. And then ultimately, I was promoted up through the ranks and ended up having the honor of serving on Mr. Morgenthau's executive staff, assisting in the day-to-day management of the office. And it's an office of 1,300 staff. So it was a tremendous experience. And I'm so grateful to him for putting that trust in me and how much I learned about what it means to lead an office that size and making sure that the prosecutors and all the staff are committed to the mission of doing justice. It's such a legendary office, New York City. Morgenthau. I mean, what a history that guy had and his family. Were you aware of it while you were working there and growing up a New Yorker? Yes, very much so. So Mr. Morgenthau served as district attorney for 35 years. Colorado, as you know, Craig, is, I believe, the only state in the nation that has term limits for district attorneys. So Mr. Morgenthau served 35 years before, at 90 years old, as he put it, taking early retirement, although he did go on to work at a law firm after that. But during his time, Mr. Morgenthau was such a renowned leader in the prosecution community. 
and a legend in the Democratic Party that you'd walk in his office and see pictures of him with Martin Luther King Jr., Robert F. Kennedy, who he was with when JFK was shot, actually, pictures of him and John F. Kennedy. I mean, Mr. Momenta just had dedicated his entire life and his entire career to public service, and he was a giant. So I was very lucky to work with him. And one of the few people I've ever met who, when you shake his hand and you see him for the first time, you feel like you're talking to someone who's just an incredible person and leader. It just emanates from him. And I was very, as I say, honored to work with him and for him. Wow. Was he sharp even at the end? How old was he when you were working with him? In my last couple of episodes, we've been talking about O. Otto Moore, who had to retire from the Colorado Supreme Court at the mandatory retirement age of 72. And the guy who hired me into the DA's office, he had hired O. Otto Moore back. And O. Otto was in his 80s, but still contributing. What about Morgenthau? Was he sharp right up until his early retirement? Yes, incredibly so. One of the smartest people I've ever met. I had the honor of working alongside him my last three or four years at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And he had numbers and case names and people's names just at the top of his mind, right at his fingertips. He was really incredible. I'll just tell you one quick story. When he was running for re-election a couple of years before he left office, he called me into his office and said, you have to tell me, where's your wife's grandmother live again? Because I want to go back to that care facility and meet some people there as part of the reelection campaign. And I said, oh, I, she's on the Upper West Side. He said, no, I remember. It's either 80, 89th or 90th Street. Which one is it? And I couldn't believe he remembered it, especially since I could not remember it, but just an incredibly sharp person and a great leader. About how old was he then? Uh, 87. Holy cow. So did you know Cy Vance or that legendary name? I mean, it's extraordinary, the people who have led the Manhattan DA's office. Did you know Cy Vance or his crew right now? Uh, yes. So when Mr. Morgenthau was leaving office, he had handpicked Cy Vance as his successor. And as they were making the transition, I had the privilege of working with Cy and helping him get acclimated to the office and start to get things underway. And that was at the same time that my family and I were already making the move to Colorado. So I only worked with Cy for a couple months after he took office, as well as the lead up to him taking office. And now it appears that his time is coming to an end there because he has not declared his intent to run uh, again. And the campaign, or excuse me, the election's coming up this June. And there's about eight or nine serious candidates going for the spot. Wow, what a job. And it doesn't come open very often, right? So this has got to be the first free-for-all ever in your lifetime or mine in the DA's office there. That is absolutely right, Craig. How is it going to shake out? It's hard to say. It'll be really interesting. I mean, there's a number of prosecutors or former prosecutors who are running to become district attorney for Manhattan. Then there are some reform advocates. I believe there's a legislator who's running as well. And a couple of people of different renown who don't have any experience as prosecutors, but it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. You know, what makes it especially interesting is that in Manhattan, if I recall correctly, it's seven to one ratio for the Democrats. So it really comes down to the primary. And as you know, a small percentage of the people who actually live in a county, including Manhattan, vote in the primary, particularly when it's a non-presidential uh, election year. So with eight or nine candidates, this election in Manhattan in June may come down to, you know, who gets 30,000 votes. I mean, that could end up being what determines who's going to be the district attorney 
in one of our country's largest cities with a, a couple million people living there. Right. With a couple of the most important cases that all of America and the world are watching, especially the tax returns of Donald J. Trump. Cybance has had to go to the Supreme Court. What do you make of all that? Where's this going? They just hired that guy Pomerantz. Tell us what you make of it. Well, I certainly appreciate Cy's commitment to seeing this case through. And the fact that it's taken as long as it has highlights the difficult legal hurdles they have, both through the investigation and if there ever comes to be a prosecution of former President Trump. The fact that they can now start to get his tax returns, to me, signals that the investigation is going to be going on for quite some time and certainly including into the next district attorney's administration. So we'll have to see how that plays out. It'll probably be discussed as part of the DA's race, and voters may say, hey, who's going to carry this forward? Who has the skills? Who has the tenacity? Who has the wisdom when it comes to big decisions like this? As well, they're investigating that we build the wall thing. Steve Bannon got pardoned by the president, but what do you make of that? And how does New York City get jurisdiction over something like that? You know, I don't know enough about that particular case to say, but I do know that since New York City has so many financial institutions operating within New York, that's often how the Manhattan DA's office has been able to articulate jurisdiction in particular cases. I mean, the Manhattan DA's office over the years has been a tremendous leader in financial fraud prosecutions, in large part because of the number of banks and financial institutions that operate in and through New York City, thereby giving the Manhattan DA's office jurisdiction. So there have been prosecutions of people and corporations in other countries by the Manhattan DA's office, in part because of the connection of financial institutions that operate within the city. That's interesting. Do you ever get tempted as Boulder's top prosecutor to say, hey, I have a victim of charitable fraud in my jurisdiction. I'm going to go after a big national fraud. Doesn't that give you standing? And is that something that prosecutors in Colorado ever do or should think about doing? Well, I I certainly think financial fraud has to be a priority for the district attorney's offices throughout Colorado, as well as the U.S. attorney's office here in Colorado. And that's why I'm so grateful that over the years, we continue to maintain such a strong working relationship between all the district attorneys, as well as the U.S. attorney. I saw you praise Jason Dunn on Twitter. He just completed his term. He's about to at the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's really important to keep politics out of it. Did he do a good job with that? Is that what you were saying? Yes, definitely. And that's exactly what I was saying. I think Jason did a terrific job keeping politics out of that office. And as prosecutors, that has to be a core function of ours, that we pursue justice without fear and without favor, and certainly without any political influence involved. And Jason did that from day one. He certainly had a challenging term as U.S. attorney. I mean, he was appointed relatively late. President Trump's administration did not appoint him until a couple of years into President Trump's term. And then the pandemic hit. So I really applaud Jason, not only for his focus on doing justice, but also helping that office weather a real storm in terms of the pandemic and what that presented. So I wish him all the best in the future. And he's done a terrific job as U.S. attorney for Colorado. I don't know how you guys do it. I mean, to run a big office with the pandemic and do it over Zoom. And I feel bad for the prosecutors who are probably like you and I were when we were back in the day, trial deputies. It's not the same when you don't get a, you know, 
just mix with your colleagues and go from office to office. Hey, I have this issue or tell me what's going on with you. It's that camaraderie that I remember and I miss. And I know you know what I'm talking about. How do you deal with that now, Michael? Well, you're absolutely right, Craig. One of the best things about being in a district attorney's office is the relationship and camaraderie with your colleagues and the shared commitment to doing justice and fighting for community safety. And those conversations, I mean, there's so much meaningful work being done, but also really enjoyable relationships and moments. As you know, Craig, those things have been impacted by the pandemic, certainly, and it's been really difficult and challenging. At the same time, I'm grateful Think about it. If we had the pandemic 20 years ago and Zoom and all these virtual platforms did not exist, it would actually be much, much more difficult. So I try to recognize the positives that we have right now, including the ability to connect virtually. It's not at all the same, of course. But I'll share with you very quickly, we had a holiday party in December for the office, and we invited each unit to put on either a skit or tell a story, write a poem, whatever they wanted to do. And I was just blown away. And I was laughing hysterically from many of the uh, things that were going on during the holiday party. So it was virtual, not at all the same as being in person. But if it was 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to do that. So I really can't tell you enough how terrific the staff has been. We have 90 members in this office. They work tirelessly to enhance public safety and improve the justice system. They miss one another and they miss being in the building together. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we're all excited to get there. In the meantime, crime does not stop. Boulder, I'm reading the Daily Camera. You had a machete attack. You had a 14-year-old killed with a gun. I mean, life goes on. And is the quality of law enforcement impacted by the pandemic? Well, certainly the pandemic has presented unique and concerning challenges to community safety and well-being. Boulder County remains a very safe and wonderful community, relatively speaking, but we're not immune from the challenges that you see in other parts of the state and other parts of the country. And you're right, we've had violent crimes happen in the last month. We've had uh, three murders, actually. So there's been a lot going on, and certainly it's been a difficult time for law enforcement, just given the challenges that law enforcement faces and also the pandemic, of course. The restrictions that we have on the jail population here in Boulder County And those restrictions are in place to try to keep people at the jail healthy, not just the offenders, of course, but also the medical staff, the jail staff, the attorneys who go in and out. And as you know, Craig, jails are different than state prison where someone can go and serve for years. People are usually in jail just for a short amount of time. So if the coronavirus spreads like wildfire through the jail setting, that's going to have a direct impact on the health of our community. So there are restrictions at the Boulder County Jail and jails throughout the state as well as at the state prison level, on how many people could be within the facility and on what charges. And that certainly has had an impact on local law enforcement's ability to handle cases as they normally would have prior to the pandemic. And I appreciate the incredibly hard work, incredible hard work of the law enforcement agencies in Boulder County to maintain public safety while also getting through the difficult challenges presented by the pandemic. I mean, and you also look at some of the crimes coming out of the pandemic, you know, the unemployment benefit scams, stimulus check scams. We've seen a dramatic increase in auto theft cases, as well as people breaking into cars and stealing stuff from within the cars. And it's part of the reason we launched a safe gun storage initiative, because we've seen a surge in gun purchases nationwide, but also in gun thefts where people 
who leave their guns unsecured in their car are getting the gun stolen and falls into the wrong hands. So together with Attorney General Weiser, we launched a safe gun storage initiative here. And one area that we're particularly concerned about, and we've been working closely with our law enforcement partners, is on the increase in domestic violence. And that's especially concerning because, as you know, Craig, it can have deadly consequences. So we've been doing a lot of outreach to victims and treatment providers and to our community at large and sending out safety bulletins on a regular basis to help people as much as we can as we get through this pandemic together. Well, God bless you. God bless Phil Weiser for your efforts to try to stem gun violence, because this is nothing new. And back during the summer of violence in the years that followed, I found myself prosecuting a number of kids, kids with guns. And at the time, there was no law against kids having guns in Colorado. We formed a group called Punch People United, No Children's Handguns. And we fought the NRA, and we won in a special session with the help of General Felix Sparks, also a former state Supreme Court justice, whose grandson had been murdered in Thornton, Colorado. And he asked to join our organization. I said, yes, sir. And he, he was powerful. We brought James Brady to town, Roy Romer, and Bill Ritter was involved in the fight too. Anyway, I, I just love what you're doing. And so many of my most horrendous murder cases started with a gun stolen out of a car or stolen out of a burglary. That's what they want more than anything, criminals, because it's valuable to find a weapon. And that's the thing they want the most. Am I right? You're absolutely right, Craig. And I applaud you for all the work you've done in this area over the years. We have to take active steps to prevent and reduce gun violence, including crimes and suicides involving guns. And if people store their guns safely and securely, we prevent violent acts and accidental tragedies. So I'm very grateful to the Attorney General for his leadership and support of the Safe Gun Initiative. We had in Longmont at the end of last year, we had 15 guns stolen from unlocked vehicles. I mean, these are just people who are walking down the street, lifting up the door handle of a car. If it's locked, they move on. If it's unlocked, they get in and they start rifling through the person's console, glove compartment, and so on. And they'll take whatever they can that's valuable in there. And if guns are in there, they're taking the gun. And it's either going on to be used in another crime or being used for individuals to harm themselves. And we really need people to engage in safe gun storage. It has to be a priority for us because if it's, it's as easy as hitting the button on a key fob when we lock our cars, we can really prevent more crimes from happening and tragedies from taking place. Here's another issue that I got very familiar with because I was on conservative right-wing radio and they went nuts over the red flag law. I thought it was a no-brainer after Parkland especially. In fact, Donald Trump even said, hey, we need a red flag law. We're going to take the guns first and we'll deal with it later. But what a brouhaha. Now it's been over a year and a smart guy like you, Michael, you know whether it's working or not. How is it working in Colorado? How is it working in Boulder County? Well, it's working very well, and it's working for the exact reason that I supported it, which is that people who are in the midst of a mental health crisis and who are considering harming themselves or others should not have immediate access to firearms. So the extreme risk protection order built has built into it due process so that a court is the one deciding whether the gun should be seized temporarily while the person is going through the mental health crisis. And as you've seen, Craig, a year in, 
there's been a fairly judicious application. People who are having their guns seized, it seems as though they're entirely appropriate cases for that. And I really do worry about people being harmed by those who are going through a mental health crisis or if they're going to harm themselves. So I think the extreme risk protection order, the red flag law, as it's called, was Colorado taking a real positive and important step to protecting people without infringing upon one Second Amendment rights. I haven't heard of any abuses, but there are a lot of DA's offices. You coordinate with all of them. And at this point, you're kind of the senior statesman. What is the crew like? I've interviewed all the new DAs in Craig's Lawyers Lounge, Brian Mason, Alexis King, John Kellner. Of course, I know Beth McCann for 40 years now, and she's been in Craig's Lawyers Lounge. How is the new crew of DAs now that you're a senior statesman? Well, I I don't think of myself or refer to myself as a senior statesman, but I feel incredibly honored to work alongside the other uh, 21 elected district attorneys in the state of Colorado. It is an outstanding group of public servants, and I really have such great respect for all of them. And we have a very close working relationship. We meet as a group at least once a month. I talk to them very, very often, especially now we have the Sensing Reform Task Force work underway, and there's a number of us involved in the task force. So we're talking on a regular basis. And we also at times get to commiserate where yesterday I'm on the phone with my colleague and friend from an office on the Western Slope. And we're talking about a murder case that he's handling and being able to just pick up the phone and talk to one another about things we have going on in our offices and jurisdictions and some of the challenges we face and maintaining community safety. Those relationships are really important and special. And I'm grateful to the Colorado District Attorney's Council and Executive Director Tom Raines because they do a great job of hurting all of us 22 cats and making sure that we have the opportunity to connect with one another. There are times where we disagree on policies or we have different approaches in our respective offices, and that's to be expected because we have different philosophies and different jurisdictions, but we are united in having really constructive and positive conversations, and there's a lot of respect and and great work being done between all of us. You already brought up the subject of term limits and Colorado being the only state that has term limits on district attorneys. Do you think that's a good idea by Colorado or should it be reformed? I'd like to see it changed. And it's for the reason that you said earlier, that politics should never factor into what goes on in a prosecutor's office. And I think when term limits exist in our state for district attorneys, by the very nature of it, it requires people to think about what the district attorney is going to be doing next. And hopefully the DA always keeps it out of their mind and out of their office. And I'm certainly committed to that. But I worry that term limits has an impact. And you want to have DA's offices with experienced prosecutors who know what they're doing, especially in the non-metro areas where they have smaller staff. So let's say you're down in southwestern Colorado and you have six prosecutors total, including the district attorney, and the district attorney hits term limits. And then the others decide to leave the office. And it's a you know sparsely populated area. You need someone who's going to be able to come in and handle a murder case, handle a sex assault case. Those cases require people with real experience and the ability to reach the right result. So I do worry that term limits has an impact on our ability to do justice and maintain public safety. So I would love to see it changed. And even if it's after I'm done, I just think Colorado would be better off allowing district attorneys to serve until the voters believe someone else should be elected. And you can go till you're 90, like Robert Morgenthau. Wasn't your predecessor, Alex Hunter, a bit of the problem? He served 28 years and 
anyway, toward the end, we're going to get to Sean Benet. Let's not go there just yet. You think term limits are bad, and is there any movement to reform that? Do you have any legislative backers? I don't see any movement to reform term limits, and I actually am personally am in favor of term limits generally. Uh, just not for. But DAs. I do think when it well for offices such as DAs, and I, I would include sheriffs in this as well. But offices where it's not about politics or political affiliation. I mean, the job we're doing is completely separate from politics. So yes, we're elected officials, and yes, we're answerable to the voters, and we should be. But I think when you place term limits on a job like this, you're denying offices and communities the opportunity to have people with real experience. And I'm not just referring to the elected district attorney, but also his or her senior staff. And that has a particular impact, as I say, in the non-metro jurisdictions, where if you have complete turnover in an Mm -hmm. office, there's going to be a shortage and a difficulty in replacing those folks. So what about nonpartisan elections like they have for Denver municipal jobs? You don't even have party backing. That would be interesting, don't you think? I agree. That would be really interesting. What is your situation in Boulder? Can you serve three terms? I forget the rule. And I just had Stan Garnett and his son on an episode called The Garnett's. One episode that was, if you want to check them out. But talk to me. What's your situation, Michael Doherty? Well, I would love to check that episode out because I consider uh, Stan a good friend and an ally. And he left big shoes for me to fill. He had a terrific run as district attorney for Boulder County. So in Boulder County, I can serve three terms. As you will recall, I was elected to finish Stan Garnett's term. He left office to go into private practice before his term was up. So I actually just started a full four-year term, which I'm thrilled about and really excited about the direction of the office and the work ahead. So you can go for a long time. Maybe the law will change. And I like it because I think you bring the right perspective to the DA's job. And I also like on Twitter that you speak out on critical moments in our country. And certainly that happened with the day you called a shameful day for our country, January 6th. What were your thoughts as you watched that unfold? Well, it was horrific seeing our nation's capital under attack, seeing people within the capital terrorizing the police officers who were there, who many of whom bravely fought to defend the capital and to defend the elected officials and staff within the building. Just it was a dark day for our country. And I think a really a day that'll stay with all of us for the rest of our lives. I'm hopeful and optimistic that Things are going to continue getting better in this country, but it's going to take a lot of work, Craig. So it was definitely a dark and troubling day. It was. But then I was encouraged when they said, we're going to have a trial. We're going to have it right away. Now they're acting like prosecutors. We're going to get accountability. And they put on a hell of a trial. They got 57 votes. Some Colorado members made us very proud. I'm sure you want to talk about them, but Wow. When you have a trial like that and the outcome is acquittal, what does that mean for you and me as Americans and you in particular as the head of Boulder County Justice where trials occur all the time? No, you're absolutely right. And I am extremely proud and grateful to the members of the Colorado delegation who participated in that process. I mean, Representative Joe Neguse, Diana DeGette, they did an absolute outstanding job. And I had friends of mine from the Manhattan DA's office texting me about Joe Goose, asking me if he had been a prosecutor because his trial skills were evident and how he presented. And I have the privilege and honor of working with Joe on a regular basis. So I was not surprised, but he certainly 
did a fantastic job representing Colorado, but also standing up for the rule of law and for justice. You know, in terms of the acquittal, Craig, I have to remind myself it's different than a criminal trial. So the world that you and I have worked in for so many years, uh, the criminal world, we're used to you add up the evidence and you count on the jury to reach the right result without any consideration of politics or alliances or future elections. All of those things factor into what happens in an impeachment proceeding. So I had to remind myself of that. So it didn't change my faith in the American justice system. In some ways, it actually renewed my faith in the people we have working on our behalf in Washington, D.C. What if real jurors acted that way? No, we're not going to listen. No, it's, it's in effect jury nullification. And I just worry. And, you know, jury trials have essentially been suspended for the better part of a year. But when we get back to that, do you think it's possible to convince 12 people or is it more difficult now? 12 people all voting the same way? That's not America anymore. What do you think? Oh, I have such faith in our jury system. I think it's part of what makes the American justice system as strong as it is. And we're really fortunate. And I've tried cases in a number of different jurisdictions over my career. And I feel really grateful that we rely on jurors to come in from our community and be the voice of the community and check on the government and to make sure that they agree. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's always fascinating to me that we get 12 people in a room and they could reach a unanimous verdict. But time and time and time again throughout my career, I've seen it happen. And I'm very confident when we start doing jury trials again, we'll continue to see that when the evidence bears it out. And, you know, I look at the Boulder County jurors, always a very smart group. And when we put forth the evidence time and time again, we've been successful, especially so in major and serious cases and reaching the right outcome. And I greatly appreciate the jurors' service. I'll tell you, Craig, we had, uh, there was a time in 2020 where we were able to start conducting trials again. The numbers had gone down, in terms of virus numbers, had gone down enough that we are trying cases. We had a homicide trial in August of 2020. And I'm so grateful to those community members who served as jurors on that case. I mean, they had to come in, wear masks. The witnesses were testifying from behind plexiglass shields. It was such a difficult process in terms of all the health protocols but they paid such careful attention, really horrific murder case where an older gentleman was killed by someone who broke into his house in Longmont. And the jury reached the right result. And that individual is now being held responsible for what he did to the victim and to the victim's family and our community. But it's because of the jurors and their willingness to serve, even during a pandemic. And I just was so grateful for them. Right. And often it takes courage to be on a jury. I remember the Denver trial of Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, and it was really quite a scene. I had the privilege of covering that for Channel 7. Behind the scenes, the prosecutor in charge was Merrick Garland. He's now hopefully going to be confirmed in a few days as Attorney General of the United States. What do you think is the top prosecutor in Boulder County of this new top prosecutor in America? Well, I'm very excited for, for him, and I'm hopeful that the confirmation process goes smoothly. You know, every, I've never met him personally, but everything I've heard, he's absolutely outstanding in terms of his experience and his integrity and his approach to how he prosecutes cases and the Oklahoma City bombing case being a prime example that's discussed when people look at his qualifications and background. So hopefully that process goes off without a hitch. I was interested during his confirmation hearing as he discussed capital punishment. I could tell he was not a super fan, neither am I, but I did 
achieve a death verdict against Frank Rodriguez, the last one, maybe in Denver history. That was in the mid-80s. And Merrick Garland got a death penalty against Tim McVeigh. Twelve Colorado jurors said, you're going to be executed. And he was within four years in Terre Haute, Indiana. And now Garland was asked about it. And he said, you know, I'm having some second thoughts, some pauses. And so am I. And I follow your Twitter feed. I don't know if you've always been against capital punishment, but the rate at which executions took place during the last month or so of Donald Trump, it's that politics interfering with the, the normal pace. Give us your thoughts. Were you always an opponent of capital punishment or did you come around to it? Well, I certainly share your concerns about how the Trump administration rushed to have executions conducted in their final days in office. I mean, to me, when someone's packing up their office to leave, there's a rush to get a lot of things done, but conducting ex executions is not supposed to be on that list. And the Trump administration presided over executions of more individuals in the last seven or eight months of their administration than in the entire 12 years prior. So those numbers, I think, should give anyone pause. As you know, Craig, we as a state here in Colorado, have repealed the death penalty. And it still exists at the federal level. So I just joined in a letter, along with Stan Garnett, asking the Biden administration to take steps to reduce and eliminate the use of the death penalty at the federal level. Well, part of the argument is you're going to get a bad prosecutor or a bad executive authority who's going to go after the wrong people and be bloodthirsty and political about it. When I was a prosecutor doing the Frank Rodriguez case, the only death penalty case I ever handled, I said, no, I'm not doing it because of that. Right. And you are Michael Doherty. Don't you trust yourself? Or is it, hey, I can't have the power because other people cannot be trusted with this power? Well, to me, it's not a lack of trust in prosecutors. And certainly I have all the trust and faith in the prosecutors here in Colorado. I do look at the racial disparities nationwide that we've seen in the application of the death penalty, the possibility of wrongful convictions, of course, that exist in cases, and also what our sense of justice as a country requires. And that, and that sense of justice changes and evolves over time. So I respect people who have a different view than mine on this topic. I really do. I, I understand the instinctual reaction that people have also. But to me, a government should not put to death its own citizens. And I know it's a difficult and complex issue, but Colorado has now dealt with it. And I'm hoping the uh, federal government will look at it squarely. And it seems like from President Biden's remarks that he plans to do so. And I'm able to say it because I'm not a prosecutor, nor have I ever been an elected prosecutor. But look at Bruce Castor Jr., the guy who was the DA in Montgomery County, the buffoon during the impeachment trial. And think about him with prosecutorial authority, that's a scary thought. I don't know if you want to comment on that or not. Nothing in particular about that. I would just say I think we've come a long way in terms of making positive changes to the justice system. I think this is part of it as we continue to evolve as a, as a country and how we view justice. And I would highlight, of course, for your listeners what you know, which is for murder convictions in the state of Colorado, we have life without the possibility of parole. That's not true in other states. And that's a rather severe and certainly appropriate punishment for those who commit horrific murders. We continue to see those kinds of cases in Boulder County and throughout the state of Colorado. And we do have the punishment of life without the possibility of parole. And I, I think that's an important point for people to consider when we talk about whether the death penalty should exist or not. Right. 
And there are horrific murders. Every murder is horrific, but some are particularly cruel and depraved. And some involve multiple victims. And you have to say, well, are we giving them free murders? One case I know about that had an abundance of aggravating circumstances happened on December 25 or 26, 1996. A little girl, that's an aggravating factor, was killed in a most cruel and heinous way. That's another aggravating factor in a crime that was apparently for pecuniary gain, perhaps, if you believe the ransom note. Anyway, there had to be about five to 10 aggravating factors that would have qualified the perpetrator for the death penalty if that perpetrator was ever caught and charged in the enduring mystery of Jean Benet Ramsey and her vicious murder that now is in the lap of Michael Doherty. And Carol McKinley was my guest last week, and she's met with John Andrew Ramsey, who told her that he had a meeting with you, Michael Doherty. I tell you, the, the latest 2020 that we did really, I, I got to know John Andrew Ramsey well. He's a really good guy. He's the older half-brother of John Bonet. He was in um, Atlanta when this happened, getting ready to fly to Charlevoix to meet, his, to meet John and Patsy and the kids. And he really and truly believes that someone got in that house and killed her. And he's out there looking. He's out there looking. He's giving interviews. And, you know, I asked him, first First thing I ever asked him was, look, Patsy is your step, was your stepmom. She died in 2006. Is there anything about her that makes you think she could have killed John Bonet? And he said, no. She was the most wonderful woman. What you see is what you get. She was always positive. There's no way my dad and Patsy could have killed her. And he does not believe it. And, and it was good for me to talk to someone like that because he, he's really dedicated to finding the killer, and he's looking into all kinds of different DNA technologies like separating DNA out because there's a mixture in her panties and he wants to separate that DNA and he wants the Boulder police to take a look at it. He just met with the Boulder police last month and Mike Doherty. So he's out there looking for the killer. I mean, if you want my opinion, I think the ransom note is best piece of evidence we have right now. What can you tell us? Well, Obviously, Craig, it's a really tragic murder, and any unsolved homicide is heartbreaking uh, for, for the victim's family and the community as a whole. We actually have, as a state, roughly 1,600 unsolved homicides, and I get that number from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, who we continue to work closely with on unsolved homicides. And I'm also a member of the Cold Case Review Team for the state of Colorado, which does terrific work looking into unsolved murders. And in any case, my heart goes out to the, the family of the victim. The Ramsey case, I mean, at the time of the Ramsey murder, I was still in school back in New York. But it's obviously, given the circumstances surrounding the murder, a case that's really captured the attention of people not only here in Colorado, but worldwide. I still hear from a fair amount of them on occasion, and people tend to have very strong opinions about who would have been involved in the murder and what the motive was. What I can tell you is that it remains an active investigation with the Boulder Police Department. So the Boulder Police Department's handling the investigation. And that over the years, a lot of great people have brought their skill and effort and energy to try to solve that case. And obviously, it's just uh, incredibly unfortunate that that case remains unsolved, along with the hundreds of others that remain unsolved in the state of Colorado. 
I have to note that the Boulder Grand Jury that met for the better part of a year, I think it was over a year, you just praised how Boulder jurors are smart. And we found out from Charlie Brennan's report in the Boulder Daily Camera a few years ago that they actually voted a true bill, which the DA, Alex Hunter, refused to sign. I just had occasion to rewatch Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, which was written by Charlie Brennan and Lawrence Schiller. Have you ever read that book about Jean Benet or seen the movie? No, I read the book. When I was taking office, Dan Garnett recommended, you should read this book just so you're up to speed on at least some of the details to the extent that they're captured in the book and if they're and of course to the extent that they're accurate but i thought the book was terrific and uh it was really well done and obviously they put a lot of time and effort into researching it oh man it was crazy those days because i was in your boulder justice complex in fact larry schiller and i were in a little room and he was having me look at legal papers because we were trying to get information but what a time it was and you were still you know thinking probably about I don't know. What were your athletic dreams? Did you have athletic dreams? You're an accomplished athlete, as I recall. I'm not sure I've ever had reason to have real athletic dreams, but I've always enjoyed playing sports and I'm still a long distance runner. But I notice on your Twitter feed, as we move away from Sean Benet, unless you have something more to say about that, I know you're in charge of the case. You need to be careful, but is it fair to say it's an open case? You'd love to solve it. And anybody has some good clues, let you know? Certainly, every unsolved homicide in Boulder County remains an open case. And as I said, a, a real tragic case. Believe me, there's no shortage of people who send their information, thoughts, suggestions to the Boulder Police Department since Boulder PD is in charge of the investigation. That's where the information goes. And those range from people using a numeric code to solve the case, people using a color code to solve the case. Believe me, Boulder PD gets the full gamut of leads and suggestions and tips on how to solve that case. And I can tell you that they remain actively engaged in that effort. But uh, what was, you wanted to move on, you said, Craig, and I didn't catch what you wanted. You know what, you just bring that up. And, And I want to bring up the big lie by Donald Trump. You don't have to say it, but I will. Trump's big lie that led to the January 6th insurrection. And some Colorado lawyers who I know, Jen Ellis, I'm talking to you. You guys said, well, we have all these affidavits. And they put up a website soliciting affidavits. And I thought, what if Michael Doherty put up a website soliciting affidavits regarding Jean Benet? You'd probably get a thousand false confessions, 10,000 false affidavits of this or that. And then you could put them all in your hand and say, look at all these affidavits. Am I making a decent point or should we move on? Uh, I think you've made a decent point. And uh, I understand what you're saying. And I will say people can have strong competing theories and claims. But as you know, it takes actual evidence to prove things. And you know where they got the evidence, apropos of your comment about cold cases, right down the road from me. I'm so proud that a guy I trained, not just Stan Garnett, but Mitch Morrissey, who became a great DA, his DNA company helped Cherry Hills Village Police solve a crime. John Kellner is charged a guy from Nebraska in the 1981 murder of Sylvia Quayle. And when she got killed in August of 81, I was just getting sworn in as deputy DA in nearby Denver, and it makes my heart feel good that her murder was not forgotten in this 
miscreant if he did it. It looks like the DNA says he did. It's so good that justice came to him, don't you think? Well, I was very excited to see the news as well. And I think anytime a cold case can be solved, it's a great day for the state of Colorado. And I'm excited to work with John Kellner. As you know, he's been newly elected to office. He actually started as a deputy district attorney here in Boulder County. And throughout his time in Boulder, but also down in the 18th, he's made a real commitment to work in cold cases. And that's something that he shares with others in this office, but also throughout the state of Colorado. And so seeing him stand up and talk about that case yesterday was terrific. Like any good trial attorney, I do my research. I follow you on Twitter, but I saw that post about your late father on his 80th birthday and how he told you he had such a great life and he loved your mother very much. What a beautiful thing to hear from your father. Uh, what was he like? Uh, he was an amazing man, Craig. Thanks for asking. What's his name? Uh, Jim Darty. Tell us about your mom and dad. So my dad was a teacher. He was born in Brooklyn, the son of Irish immigrants, one of 11. Grew up in Brooklyn, became a teacher, and then later in life became a, a principal and was really dedicated to educating young people and working with teachers to improve the educational system. And the kindest, best, most positive person I've ever met, I really mean that, and also one of the hardest working people, really incredible. In fact, my wife recently was telling me that I was working especially hard. And I said, not as hard as my dad. And she said, that might be true, but you're close. So, and I thought that was really great praise coming from her, but also just a testament to my dad, who was an incredible person and loved his wife, my mom, very, very much. And my mom was also the daughter of Irish immigrants. All four of my grandparents came over from Ireland on the boat. Grew up in Brooklyn as well. Met my dad through his sister. And my mom, as I was growing up, was a waitress and then worked for an insurance company. And they were just incredible in their support for me and my two younger brothers, Jim and Ed and the love they they gave us and the lives they lived. And my dad, you're noting something that I put on social media. I remember my dad telling me one night we were talking, and he said, make sure when you give my eulogy, you stress that I love my life so much, and make sure you mention how much I loved your mother. And I just thought that was incredible. Thankfully, we had many years to go before I actually had to stand up and give his eulogy between that conversation and that time. But uh, that's how he lived his life. He was just very grateful to be alive and taught me to appreciate that life is truly a gift and it's meant to be enjoyed, not endured, and to always see the the better in people and to try to take the high road whenever we can. Is your mom still with us? No, my mom and dad passed away very close in time, unfortunately, although they were such a loving, amazing couple that I, I thought there was some poetry in that. They passed away about four months apart uh, from illnesses, each of them. I'm sorry for your loss. I know that I love sports. That's one of the saviors during the pandemic. I was watching right. way too much news now that Trump's gone. I'm turning my attention back to sports. And I notice you do that too. And while we're, you know, the abs winning would be okay. I'm into basketball and you got a kick out of Jokic being named first team all-star. Tell us, is hoops one of your favorite sports? Uh, I love the NBA, and I have kids who love the NBA. So, by the way, we need the Nuggets and Altitude to sort out this contract dispute because there's too few games on that we can watch right now. But we, when they are on, we love watching the Nuggets play, and we follow the NBA on a regular basis. So Jokic is an incredible player, and I'm a big fan of the Nuggets, as are my kids. 
I plan to write about this for the Colorado Sun, and it's cool that you publish in the Colorado Sun as well. Isn't that a great news outlet? Uh, I think it's absolutely fantastic, and it's a great news outlet. Also, Colorado Newsline. I don't know if you focused on that. I do. Uh, yeah, Craig, but that's a relatively new uh, news outlet on on online that we can check out. I look at both that and the uh, both of those and the Daily Camera and Denver Post, of course, too. All right. Well, I'm columnist at large for the Colorado Sun, so I have to put them at right. the top of the heap. But what I'm going to do is it's write about, and I've, I've blasted Altitude and Comcast over this very issue that troubles you, me, and your kids, my kids, and it's outrageous. But I am an NBA fan, and every night there's another drama with another player who's right up there with Jokic for MVP. I am behind this Jokic for MVP campaign. Will you join me? I'm with you 100%. And as long as we're talking about it, I would say that the recent losing streak by the Lakers should take some of the air out of LeBron's uh, campaign for MVP. Right. But if we can't run a fast break at the end of a game like Thursday night's disastrous loss to Washington. And by the way, I don't want to dwell on it because you didn't get to see it except on highlights, lowlights. It was horrible. But right. can I ask you, should I be prosecuted because I'm viewing it on streams on my laptop? Don't, I don't believe so, but you also have the right to remain silent, if you wish. But would, it, would it be wrong for me to pass along that streaming service to you and your kids? I don't think so, but I will say that ideally Comcast and Altitude will work this out. It's been over a year, and it's to the detriment of the fans that we're not able to tune in and watch the players that we love. Now, there's something where maybe you should take action as the DA for the good people of Boulder County, because somebody should break this logjam, especially during a pandemic, but... You've expressed yourself well. Finally, on that point, I get an enhancement out of my sports watching experience by wagering on the games. You may have noticed that sports wagering is now legal in Colorado. Is it okay for a prosecutor in the Boulder DA's office to make a slight wager? If it's legal, then it would be fine for prosecutors to do so. However, I don't wager on the games. I just love watching and I'm a big fan. And I think if I were betting on it would make it even more intense or crazy for me because we're really into these games. So I wouldn't, I don't want to get caught up worrying about the point spread or the over-under because I'm already emotionally invested enough and in rooting for our nuggets. I'm not telling you what to do and you enjoy it and God bless you. But what if somebody in your office wanted to wager? Is that okay? You know, it's never come up and no one's ever asked <laughs> for you. Uh, so I would have to look at the law to make sure it's okay if someone in my office actually came to me and asked about it. No, I But understand. if it's legal, then I, then I believe it would be fine. I just don't know what the new rules are. If somebody wanted to be a prosecutor and they said, well, I've imbibed in legal marijuana, is that a disqualifier? So under the law currently in Colorado, an employer can prohibit employees from using marijuana, and we do have that prohibition in place for our staff, yes. Fascinating. I appreciate you talking to me about that. And it's got to be a close call. Is that the call that's been made in every prosecutor's office in Colorado? Or do you know? I do not know. I would have to ask. But certainly for our office, I believe it's the, the right approach at this time. Fascinating. How are the marijuana laws working out? We've had quite a number of years now. Is it to the betterment or to the detriment of the people of Boulder? Well, it remains a criminal offense at the federal level, as you know, which is why we have the prohibition in place for the district attorney staff. At the state level, I think there have been some real positives and then some cause for concern as well. 
I look at the, the revenue coming in and the people, the good business actors who've complied with the many regulations required to set up their own cannabis business, and they've done so and invested their finances and their future in the cannabis industry. I think for those folks, and you know, I've had the opportunity as district attorney to meet with them and talk with them and tour a couple of places, I think they've invested their lives in it, and they're complying with the law 100%. The, at the time cannabis was legalized in the state of Colorado, part of the pitch was that it would eliminate the black market or gray market. That certainly has not happened. So that has not played out the way it was predicted it would. And violence around black market and gray market distribution of marijuana still remains a very real issue for us here in Boulder County, but also throughout the state. We have robberies, attempted murders, and murder cases in Colorado that have been part of the marijuana trade. Again, this is separate from what I say about the good business actors who are actually operating stores and facilities. These are people who are dealing in parking lots and in homes that aren't set up as licensed grow operations. So that still remains a real concern. I'll tell you, Craig, I worry about the impact on young people. Of course, recreational marijuana is not supposed to be used by anybody under 21. We've seen a concerning number of kids using cannabis products in Boulder County who are in their teen years when their juvenile mind is still developing. And we have reason to worry about the health concerns and the long-term health impacts that that brings, particularly with, you know, cannabis has changed over the years, of course. When you and I were kids and people would be smoking marijuana, that's a different substance in terms of the potency than we're seeing today. So it's fairly common for me to go to different community events. We're out in the community all the time as an office because community outreach is a priority for us to build trust in the criminal justice system and answer questions. But the questions that I get at almost every community event is from parents asking, what are we doing about cannabis, vaping, and drugs in the schools? And they worry a lot about their kids. And as a result, as district attorney, I, I share that concern. So I think there have been a lot of positives since cannabis was legalized, but I think we need to continue doing some of the good work that the legislature has actually done to reduce black market and gray market violence, reduce access to cannabis for kids, and also keep in mind the impact, the long-term health impacts on kids if they use cannabis. I'd like to see more of a public health awareness campaign, quite frankly. When I say to you that the potency has gone up and that the impact to kids is different than someone who was smoking pot 30 years ago, I'm not sure everyone realizes that some of these cannabis products are up to 98% in terms of potency and what to a kid. Uh, so I'd love to see more awareness around the state in terms of impact to kids and what we could do to protect our young people. You're a kid dad and you're raising kids. I understand your opinion and they're negatives, they're positives, but I'm positive I've had a great time talking to you and I'm positive that you are a force in Colorado law enforcement and Colorado politics, a voice to be heard. Tell everybody how they can follow you on Twitter. So my uh, Twitter account is co, and then the office has a Twitter account as well, Boulder District Attorney, 20th Judicial District, and we have an office Facebook page too. We're really committed to being accessible to the entire community, so I also invite people to call us and to look at our website for information, including safety bulletins that we send out. I am so honored to be a public servant. And I really view part of that as being accessible to the community. So I'll meet with any single person that wants to sit down, whether it's related to a case or anyone at all. And that's been true since day one. And I'm going to give another shout out to Stan Garnett, because when I was taking office, Stan said to me, you should meet with anybody that wants to meet with you. 
and I've done that, and I'm committed to it, as are the great, great people that I have the honor of working alongside here in the office. So people should reach out to us if they have any questions or concerns at all. And I'll say, Craig, it's such an exciting time. It's a challenging time, but I'm, but I'm excited about the improvements we're making to the justice system, especially our efforts in our diversion programs to lower the likelihood of reoffense and the sensing reform task force that I have the honor of serving as a co-chair on is working hard to really make improvements to the sensing structure in the state of Colorado so we can make sure that we improve in an area where Colorado desperately needs improvement, which is we rank in the bottom 10 in the country in how many people return to state prison within their release of three years. So we have roughly 50% of all individuals released from state prison back in state prison within three years. Compared to other states, that failure rate is a disservice for the offenders, future victims, our communities, and the taxpayers. So we have to do a lot of work to improve the likelihood of a successful return to the community, but also before someone even gets to the state prison level, lowering the likelihood that someone's going to return to the justice system. And I'm honored to work alongside such incredible public servants who work tirelessly to protect the community, but also to improve the justice system. And I'm really excited about this sensing reform task force. I encourage people to tune in if they're interested. The meetings are public. You can look them up on the CCJJ website. And we're looking to build more consistency, certainty, and justice into the sensing guidelines that we have in Colorado, as well as a long-term goal of the governors, eliminating private prisons, because justice has no place for profit. And you should never be considering a profit in the justice system. And I'm a strong advocate, as you know, for the elimination of private prisons. I think it should have happened yesterday, quite frankly. But I think the governor's commitment to that and making it a priority is something I'm really excited about and looking forward to the Sensing Reform Task Force continuing our work. And I encourage your great, great listeners to tune in and follow what we're doing with the Sensing Reform Task Force. Well, that's great and good for you. I have seen the pendulum swing on sentencing where it was really lenient, really severe and back and forth. And I could tell you as a a trial prosecutor, which you were, now you've got a bigger job, but we always knew the prison system really isn't working. It doesn't make people better. They learn how to be worse criminals there. But I figured it was somebody else's job, right? Now it's your job. And thanks for tackling it, Michael. It's really important. No, I'm excited to be a small part of the effort, and I am thrilled that we're making progress with it. And the fact that the governor's identified it as a priority makes me optimistic that we're going to see some legislation this year and next year dealing with sensing laws in Colorado. And I think it's a terrific step. Well, it's an honor to speak with you. Thanks for spending so much time and best of luck in your new term. Craig, thank you. I really, I love the discussion and I really appreciate it. I encourage your listeners to reach out if they want to follow up on anything at all. Thank you, Michael. You take care. Have a great day. Bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys' and girls' basketball and girls' soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. 
The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high-quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP, and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBL LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Mr. Craig. Mr. Troubadour. How are you? I'm wonderful now that I'm talking to you, although I'm a little hurt that you wrote a beautiful song about your good friend, and it's not me. Well, there's always time for you. Know, remember, he's been my good friend for 40 plus years. Actually, probably closer to 50. I would say this is the most bromantic song I've ever heard. <laughs> You're talking about my ska brother? Yes, my ska brother. You guys <laughs> are in love. I don't know. What well, to you, have to remember, you. <laughs> you have to remember we go back and it's a song about, you know, someone you've spent so much time with, in particular playing in bands and you know, doing music together that it it becomes second nature and you have that, uh, you know, understanding where one person can almost finish the thought of the other. That's T and and myself. And is that his name, T, or does that stand for something else? T stands for Thomas. Nice. But he's, we call him T. Okay. And when did you meet T and when did you fall in love? Well, <laughs> I don't necessarily need you know go with the fall in love, but but it's some kind of love, I suppose. Craig, we met when we were I was still seventeen. We met the the first day of college at CU. I was a freshman and was moving into Farron Hall, getting settled. And I heard some ruckus in the room next door, and it was a bunch of guys banging on guitars. I thought this this is uh, I've come to the right place. So T is a guitarist like you. He is. And at the time, I didn't play guitar. I, I played a little harmonica, but it was uh, meeting T and some of his, his gang. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to join in on that stuff. Tell everybody what the word ska means. 
SKA? SKA, it's a, it's a music. It originated in Jamaica. It was kind of given a different, like a, um, a shot in the arm when uh, in the early 80s, I would say, kind of when punk music was happening in, in London. And, you know, other cities in England when there was bands like Sex Pistols were coming out and that sort of thing. But there was another area of music happening, which was merging Jamaican music with kind of the punk sensibility of British music. And the, and the reason for that, Craig, is there's a prominent Jamaican population there in England. And so they, they bring their, their influences. What I like about it, especially with the snow covering Colorado, or at least the front range right now, it makes me feel like Jamaica. It's warm weather music, is it not? Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's upbeat music. I mean, to describe the music, it's, it's very upbeat and it's danceable. It actually predates reggae. So there was what they called rock steady and there was uh, ska music, which, you know, there were bands like there were there were artists like Desmond Decker, if you ever remember the Israelite. Remember that song? Oh, 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 the Israelites. That's right. That was Desmond Decker. And, and, you know, and again, that, I mean, that predates Bob Marley and what he was doing. So it's a great style of music. It's very fun to play and good to dance to. Did I just convince you that maybe I could do a little background vocals? You can, Craig. That would have to be, though, in, in your shower. Okay. You know what? Yeah, here I'm being nice. Far from any recording device of mine. Actually, you wrote this song as an apparent gift to T, also known as Tommy, because it had to be recent because people are talking about putting you out to pasture. Yep. It was his birthday a couple of years back. It was originally just kind of a toss off, something I wanted to sing, you know, at a jam and everybody liked it. So I kind of worked on it a little more and and then recorded it. I liked it, too. It's kind of a comedy song. And very rarely do you have a song where the composer writes about the size of his own nose. (laughs) I did, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yeah. And how would you describe it? Because nobody Uh, can see you right now. I think you're a handsome fellow. My wife says so. And your wife, Lisa, before she heard about your love affair with T, she liked (laughs) you too. But go ahead. My mom thought I was handsome. But I would describe my nose as prominent. Full-figured? Yes. Yeah. How about my biggest asset? I've seen bigger. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I'm trying. Well, you're doing a great job. I think uh, My Scott Brother is a beautiful tribute. I can't wait till you write a song for me. You know, Craig, stick around another 30, 40 years. And I bet you, you'll have one. I think if you stick around toward the end of this song, another moon appears. I believe um, so. I Probably true. Give There's, a listen, everybody. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Troubadour. When I met you, I was 17. Another year now, ain't that something? Guitars dancing and carrying on. Though some would put us up to pasture, still in our prime. Those silly bastards, why would we ever stop playing our songs? My Scar brother likes the same thing, throwing his heart into everything, talking to the girls, they love what we do. 
Just do this for me. Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do. And my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do. And I don't smile all the time, but Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say, Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107 for the best possible deal. Tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Now. Back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. 
Welcome back to The Lounge. Michael Bailey, my lawyer, the guy who should be your lawyer because he does a great job and of life planning. Michael, welcome back. Thank you, Craig. It's good to be here. You stay busy, not just in active law practice, a wonderful family life, but you're back to refing Colorado high school basketball. Tell us about that during a pandemic. So the start of the season kept getting pushed back. You know, usually we start December 1st and that got pushed back to like January 1st or, you know, the first week of January. And then it got pushed back all the way to like my first game wasn't until January 25th. And Colorado is one of like four states in the nation, I want to say, that all the players and coaches and referees, we all have to wear masks. So, you know, we're all out there in masks playing basketball the best we can. And every once in a while they get knocked off and someone has to put one back on. But at least we get to play. And my, my first game, someone's like, oh, you look really silly with a, my mask has a little pouch. My whistle They're like, oh, you look ridiculous like that. I'm like, and that's different than how normally because, you know, basketball referees, we kind of ridiculous is what we do. So, but at least the kids get to play and that's, and so I get to referee. So it's, you know, something that's a little bit different, but it's, okay. it's a little bit of normalcy in all of this. And so you have to blow your whistle underneath your mask or do you put a little hole in your mask for the whistle? It's underneath the mask. I guess the little hole would defeat the purpose. Well, yeah. Does this <laughs> cut down on technicals since you can't exactly see somebody's mouth? as it's moving well no (laughs) you Um, can still hear it right well you you can still hear it and the thing is with since there's no fans a lot of the things that kids would say that most of the time we wouldn't hear we end up hearing so i had a kid the other night who decided to curse about my call as he was walking off the court and normally there's you know fans and they're all cheering and i wouldn't have heard a thing but i heard him curse me after my call, so I had to give him a technical foul. I was like, well, you know, you got to be a little bit smarter. You can't yell and scream in a quiet gym. That kid <laughs> needed a criminal defense attorney. What about, could you see his lips move? How do you know it was him? As soon as I made the call, he started complaining. So I knew what he sounded like. And he just kind of had a running complaint until he, it was just, he was stepping out the car. He said, call, uh, uh, the, the car, sound the court. <laughs> he had the motive. Just as he was standing out the court. Yeah, it was, you know, no one else was saying anything, and he's the only one running his mouth. So, Are parents allowed? It depends on the school. Mm-hmm. Most schools I have been to, there are no fans. But that's changing a little bit as some of the restrictions lift. Now, I'm thinking this would have been terrible for me at George Washington High School. I was all city. I'll brag about that to my dying day. And I think I was the last white all-city player at George Washington. I'm proud of that. I claim to be white for that honorific and mention nothing of me being Jewish. But I don't think I could have accomplished any of that if I had to wear a mask because I had sports glasses on. And they would have gotten fogged up. And I was a good shooter, but I couldn't make it if I couldn't see it. Right. It presents new challenges, and it's different but then again, I think the game that you played when you played was different from the game that I played when I played 20 years ago, which is different from the game that's played now. You know, they're all basketball, but there's some significant differences between just, you know, what 
people do and how they play the game uh, and how things I work. Could, I could shoot from outside. I was a zone buster, but I don't care what era, wearing glasses is not a good thing. And do you see any <laughs> right. of those do you see any of those players with masks and glasses? And I hope you don't call fouls on them. They can't even see what they're doing. Well, I, I try to administer the game according to the rules of the game. Now, there are many people who would disagree that I do so, but I, I try to be fair and equitable in how I call the game. I'm sure you are. That's because you're an attorney and you take it seriously. And God love you for that. I love that you do high school basketball. And I like that kids are back to playing. And thank God I didn't right. have to play with the mask on. But <laughs> you're doing it, Michael Bailey. And I got to thinking about you when Rush Limbaugh passed away. No kids. I wonder what he did with his mm -hmm. money. And then last week, place where I played college basketball, there was a guy named Henry Sachs who died without any kids, and he put $1.5 million away in 1950. He's financed many scholarships out of that at about 10 k per year per African-American student in Colorado who wants it. Wow. And, you mm -hmm. know, the corpus is still $55 bucks. It's grown from $1.5 And I'm thinking, how do you do it? I bet Michael Bailey knows how. Tell us, brother. So if you're going to try to do something like that, I mean, first you have, I mean, the, the investment part of it is not what I do. But if you set up a trust that can then fund those type of things, or you can, I mean, there's lots of different options. You set up just a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill, revocable trust. If you need to get some sort of tax advantage for it, you can set up a charitable lead trust or a charitable remainder trust that you get uh, the tax break for the contribution to a charitable organization now. So there's there's lots of different options, but you basically you set up a trust that will last past your death and you set up that that trust can then fund whatever cause you believe in. Even if you're not super rich, so often people you talk to, I bet they're talking to you about the education of their kids or maybe nephews or mm -hmm. grandchildren. And then mm -hmm. how do you do that? And then can you construct it that, hey, I want Johnny to get money, but not until he's 30 and married? You know what I'm saying? Can you structure that? Yep. Yep. We've got this money. I don't want to give it all to, you know, I'll use, you know, like my kids are 14, 11, and 8. I don't want to give all of the money to my kids when they turn 18. That would be not the best idea. I say, okay, well, we'll give it a little bit to them, we'll let it pay for college, and then they can have some of it after they graduate from college, and then they can have some of it at age 30, and then the, you know, finally the rest of it at age 35. Just we step it out so that uh, the money that's going to them isn't all at once and isn't going to become something that could impact their ability to live their lives. That's interesting. Now, is it everybody's business, or can you keep that sort of thing private? When you use a trust, it is a private document, and it does not become a public document. So it works really well for keeping things private. You know, when you have a will, a will gets submitted to the probate court, and then it becomes a public document. But a trust can be a private document so that it doesn't get 
broadcast to the right. world. So your kids don't need to know. It would trouble them in a pandemic. They don't need to think about that. Hey, Dad, how come you don't trust me until I'm 30 or whatever it is? <laughs> well, they don't need to know. And then, you know, if I die, they'll find out about it and they'll go, oh, huh, what's going on with this? What's, what's up with Dad? But I think my kids will understand that it's not that I don't trust them. It's just that we're stepping things out because, you know, they get that that's what I do. And they've heard me talk about enough times why that's a good idea, but I don't think they'll get too worried about it. There are only three people who need to know in my household, Trish, me, and Michael Bailey. And that's the beauty of having you as an attorney, because I don't think that I'm going to be around once I die to make those directions, but you know what I wanted. And Trish knows and God forbid if mm-hmm. we perish together, then it's up to you, Michael Bailey. And that's the cool thing. You've got a copy. We've got a copy. Give everybody mm-hmm. an idea how they can retain your services. So if you want to give me a call at 720-394-6887, and that's 720-394-6887. They can call me. We can set up an appointment where we can sit down and talk about, you know, what their situation is and what would be appropriate for their situation because not everybody's situation is the same. And I want to know what's going on with you and your situation before I make recommendations. So, you know, I do a free initial consultation that way. Or if you go on my website at michaelbaileylawllc.com, there's a button that says contact or schedule here or set up a book or something like that. And so they can set up an appointment just right there online. Nice. And what a fresh Limbaugh would have called you about three or four years ago, or even when he got lung cancer, his diagnosis. And mm-hmm. that's got to be the most interesting time because for parents like Trish and me, I mean, we've got two boys, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen with whatever we have left over, but it might not be much because we plan to go around the world now this pandemic is over. But back to you, the advice you give <laughs> to somebody who has no kids, you know, uh, that's an interesting situation. It presents all sorts of options. Right. And a lot of times I'm like, okay, so if you don't have kids, you know, I devoted a significant amount of my life to taking care of my kids. What is your cause that you're passionate about? What is your cause that you're so you're, you're very connected to what is it that drives you and how can we support that even in your passing? So I, I try to try to point people towards that. Think how much money Rush Limbaugh had. That's quite a decision. Right. And, you know, sometime down the road, we may hear about how Rush didn't have his estate planning in order, or we may hear absolutely nothing about it because he had a trust. And so it's a private document. We may hear something about a will. We don't know yet that, that those Details tend to come out over the next couple of weeks or months. You know, think of back to Kobe Bryant and Kobe had a trust. And why did we hear about the trust? Because he hadn't added his one-year-old daughter to it. So it needed to get added in. So all of these things, you know, they kind of come around sometimes, but we got to pay attention to them and get them put in place early instead of at the last minute. Right. And you can write things down. That's a beautiful thing. You can live on after you are gone, and hopefully your heirs will see the wisdom of it. I'm just blown away by the concept that a guy like Henry Sachs 
could say, I'm going to set aside $1.5 million so that there will be a scholarship fund for any African-American permanent resident of Colorado. And he does that. Mm -hmm. And then Robert F. Smith, who is one of the richest guys in the world, took advantage of that when he graduated East High School. My guest last week in the lounge, Judge Gary Jackson, he was a scholarship recipient. I found out a lot of other judges who I've known through the years who wouldn't take advantage of that if they know about it. And, and people are learning about it. And yet that $1.5 million is now $55 million and it's going strong. And this wonderful man died in 1950. That's beautiful end-of-life planning, don't you think, Michael? It is, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to do for people. I mean, I don't have $1.5 million, so I can't do that. But if I die, life insurance pays out you know, $2 million that then allows my wife to pay off the house and take care of the kids and not have to go straight back to work. So that might be a, you know, something that I'm able to do for my wife and my kids. You know, and it, If you can do it for your family, great. If you can do it for other people, great. If you can do it for both because you have the type of money that you know, I graduated from the Donald L. Sturm College of Law at the University of Denver. Well, Donald Sturm has a couple billion dollars, or at least he did at that point. You know, if you can, you know, help both your family and the community, by all means, we should. And that sounds like a great thing to do. Donald Sturm, he did finance DU Law School. What's he got? The Bank of Cherry Creek. I've met the man. Interesting reference right there. Yeah, I mean he's. And, you know, he, he made his money in the way that he made his money. And I don't remember exactly. I mean, it's part of it was WorldCom. He's, he's done a whole bunch of different things. And good for him. Right. But but that's good. I think education, yep. if I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, it's a lot. But let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael. And I get nothing but great feedback. I do. You are of benefit in the community, what you do, because it's sad when people don't have their affairs in order. 
especially in this day and age, we were all touch and go. Did you ever think we were going to see a turn where life expectancy went down the way it just has in America? I didn't expect it, no. I think we all took for granted that life expectancy would go up and up and up. But to have it go down, it just makes you think about the end of life. And that makes me think about you. And you are a calming presence. And what I like about (laughs) you is the way you stay calm. I'm still kind of shocked that you had to dish out a technical. Must have been a very bad word, the guy said. Well, that's that's why I identified it as a curse word. And I thought I'd not get you in trouble with the SEC by saying it on air. Well, there you go. It's so cool <laughs> to talk to you, Michael Bailey. And thanks for your support of this show. It means the world to me. And I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done. And they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Michael, you're the best. Thanks so much. Have a great week. All right, thanks. Bye. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and, and matters like that so they can, they can deal with that. I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. And now we are back with a brand new segment where Dave Gunders sheds his identity as the troubadour and he becomes Dave Gunders' movie critic for the Dave and Craig movie reviews. It's no secret that, especially during the pandemic, we are friends, we are neighbors, we are dog lovers, we are dog walkers, and we have a lot of time to kill especially since Trump has gone bye-bye. So we start talking about, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Right. And next thing you know, you were demanding, well, not demanding, that's a strong word, but you said, have you seen Trumbo? How did you happen on that movie? 
God, what happened on Trumbo? You know, I had watched during the pandemic, my kids turned me on to Breaking Bad. So the actor I knew, Brian Cranston, and uh, and I was just coming, you know, surfing along on Netflix. I saw him and I thought, you know, this guy's a great actor. I got to see him in something else. And I like the storyline, the idea of a very talented playwright and his, his challenges to, uh, you know, maintain his career and feed his family during the blacklist era of, of McCarthy and the anti-American, what was it called? The anti-American committee or whatever. House on American um, Activities Committee. Thank you. Yes. Difficult time for people in, in uh, you know, in Hollywood. Very difficult. But why did you say, as you did while we were walking, Craig, I think you would like Trumbo? Well, he's a he's a journalist. He's a, an observer of of the human condition, as are you. You know, I thought you had enough in common. And I also, I also know you appreciate good writing. That movie, I thought, was beautifully written and just only gained in strength, you know, as we moved towards the end. And uh, and he made his speech Finally, I don't want to, you know, do any. There's a trigger warning, folks, but. Spoiler um, alert. <laughs> yeah, a spoiler alert. Anyway, at, at the end, he makes a speech and it's really it's really quite beautiful. He's he's honored at the end. But he has he has, you know, a, a lot to go through between his his downfall and, 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 you know, his recovery. All right. We have a simple rating system. Thumbs up or thumbs down to Trumbo. It's pretty obviously yours is thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah. And the other thing I loved about it, just to quickly say, is, is his indefatigable nature. He never quit. He never saw himself as a victim. And he continued to write under, you know, as a pseudonym. He knew what he was. He was a playwright and he had to write. And so that's what he did throughout this. And uh, it, was, it was unfortunate that he couldn't even uh, he couldn't even write under his own name because he had been labeled a communist. But there's, you know, there's resolution there. Never did he flag. Never did he falter. And you are a writer. We listen to your words every week. And I'm just waiting for a song that has indefatigable in it because you said that perfectly better than me. Well, yeah, it's not a word you, you use that often. And I don't think it would work in a song. I think you can make it work. <laughs> Something about songs want simple words. All right, let's talk about Trumbo and this simple soul. Let me start by saying thank you. I'm glad I watched it because... I pride myself on knowing all things Colorado, fourth generation Colorado and Denverite that I am, but I don't think I appreciate that Dalton Trumbo, and this is not in the movie, but I had to research him a little more. He was born in 1905 in Montrose, Colorado. His family moved to Grand Junction when he was three, and he was a good student, and he worked for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. He went to college out in L.A., and he worked night shifts as a baker for the better part of 10 years. Not a rich kid, but survived on his talents. And then, as we chronicle on my show, world events, the 20s, roaring 20s, the rise of authoritarian regimes such as Hitler, Mussolini. And he saw that coming. And to stop it, he joined with, I guess you'd call it, anti-fascist groups, a.k.a. communists. Right. And this before communists were really exposed, but he did join the communist party. So the yes. shit really hit the fan when it had a hopper and a bunch right. of harpies in Hollywood tried to expose them. And guys like Roy Cohn, who ended up being Donald Trump's lawyer, was helping Joe McCarthy try to build a name 
off of that HUAC committee. So I love the history, but I'm giving it a thumbs up. Don't you think? And I haven't watched Breaking Bad like you, but I thought it was a little overacted. Do you know what I mean? It was a little bit of a caricature, starting with the first scene when he's in a bathtub typing out his script, and he seems kooky as hell. <laughs> I didn't see that. I didn't see it as overacted. Uh, 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 but, you know, that's I guess you, you got that from it. I didn't think about that. I saw, you know, what the interesting thing is, although he was a communist, he was also he was a patriot. I mean, he loved his country. And that's the thing is that communists, you know, they suffered the bad reputation, but so many of them, you know, were just trying to, I think, you know, improve on what we have in this country, not dismiss it, you know, not reject it. It got me to thinking about Hedda Hopper, a name you always hear like Walter Winchell. And we have to talk about Plot Against America someday because Walter Winchell, he was a hero fighting fascism. Hedda Hopper, she was a Trump type. She was a Republican. That's right. Oh, my gosh. You got me researching her. Do you know what her original name was? No. Elda Fury. Elda Fury. F-U-R-Y. What a name. But then she went to Hollywood. No, she she wanted to be an actor, so she married this matinee idol, the Wolf Hopper, who had four prior wives named Ella, Ida, Edna, and Nella. (laughs) Well, that's an interesting little tidbit. Right, so she changed her name from Elda Fury to Hedda Hopper, and she had Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, and she was syndicated and went all over. But you know who was portrayed as a real jerk who's not doing well in the eyes of history? That dude, John Wayne. He's in this right. movie too. Right. Right. He was. Yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was he was the, you know, classic kind of swaggering, you know, Republican type, you know, and uh he didn't seem to have much sensitivity to 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 others, you know, with with other people w- with their own opinions. No, that's true. Now, Kirk Douglas was portrayed beautifully and there was also little snippets of Lucille Ball speaking out against it and Gregory Peck who you'd, you'd imagine would I remember hearing hearing them speaking, you know, defending the. This was during the what did they call them? The the, the 10, Hollywood the, Ten. Uh, Hollywood, the Hollywood Ten, right? So they spoke. Edward G. Robinson, however, got caught up in it and gave and and was uh, and you you know the movie kind of depicted how it it may have really you know altered his life in a very bad way that it, he was having difficulty later dealing with what he had done. You know, Kirk Douglas is quoted. I was researching Hedda Hopper and Trumbo, and he was sitting behind Hedda Hopper, and so was Elizabeth Taylor at some screening where they had a newsreel of Trumbo accepting an Academy Award, and Hopper said something disparaging, and Elizabeth Taylor, according to Kirk Douglas, said, Hedda, why don't you shut the fuck up? Well, I could see her. I could see Elizabeth Taylor saying that. Yeah, but Hedda Hopper probably was an anti-Semite too, and you've got Kirk Douglas, proud Jewish guy, Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. who ended up being Jewish, and it's just interesting. But back to beautiful actresses, you know, Diane Lane is one of my favorite, and she was a good actress in this playing Cleo right. Trumbo. I've always yes. loved her, and I read up on her history. She was a good mother. She held that family together. And she knew how to talk to her husband, who wasn't always easy. 
she does play great mothers. And do you know her real life mother was named Colleen Farrington? She went by Colleen Price. She was a nightclub singer, but she was most famous in 1957 for being a Playboy centerfold. Now you're a lot older than me. Do you remember that? (laughs) No, I was four. And and so she had that mom and she had a dad who was a drama teacher and a taxi driver in New York. And her parents separated when she was 13 days old, 13 wow. days old. So mm. and she's gone on to play great mothers. Brian Cranston. I mean, I liked it. I, I liked that you recommended the movie. But another thing that maybe made me too conscious of the acting was Louis C.K., playing the role of Arlen Hurd. Right. Louis C.K., the disgraced comedian, if you consider masturbating in front of people without their permission, kind of crude, and I do. I don't recommend it. So that he filmed this probably, what, a year or two before his scandal hit. Wow. I didn't realize that. No, did not know that. And you know that Arlen Hurd was not a real character. He's a composite character. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. See, I'm, I'm always Very yeah, good. I'm learning. Now here's the final You've done test. Done research. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was the name of Trumbo's oldest daughter? You, the father of great daughters. Uh, Natalie. Nicola. Okay, close. And who's the famous Nicola in Denver? Come on now. Nicola in Denver. No. See, I keep telling you to watch the Nuggets and Nikola Jokic, the Joker. Oh, I didn't know that was the first. That's the that's the that's, that's the Joker. You got to listen. That's to my his show first this name, Nikola. Yes. Oh wow! It can go either way, just like Dave, or I mean T, whatever it is. <laughs> wow. Let's talk about the movie that I asked you to watch, and okay. here it's my biggest thumbs up. I found it on YouTube. That's nice because it's so accessible. You can watch it on your phone, whatever. This holds up on your phone, on your TV, on your laptop. It's the Heartbreak Kid. No, not the Ben Stiller stupid crude version, but the Charles Grodin, Sybil Shepard, Eddie Albert, Jeannie Berlin version. Please tell me you loved it. I didn't. What? I didn't, but this will make for some good conversation. In fact... I want you to tell me why you said, Dave, you've got to watch this. This is a great movie. I did not see the greatness. But before I get into that, into my problems with the movie, I want to hear why you recommended that movie okay. to me. We already talked about indefatigability, right? And yes. this character, Lenny Castro, Jewish sporting goods salesman who is of an age where he wants to maybe settle down and get married. Maybe he doesn't. He meets a girl. He wants to have sex. She won't do it until they get married. So they get married. And then the comedy and the the tragedy begins as they go on their honeymoon. And he starts to discover that maybe he made a mistake. And then Sybil Shepherd is hitting on him. What's a guy to do? And then he pursues Sybil Shepherd, And he is indefatigable. Yeah, well, so I still haven't heard the greatness. No, no, I thought his character, Craig, I didn't think it was very well developed. You didn't even know what this guy was about. 
what his values were. We just knew that he was somehow he had this angst. He, he wasn't happy in his very, you know, young marriage. He wanted, you know, excitement in his life. And he did have persistence, which he said, but that's about all he had. He seemed like a hollow man to me, Craig. And, but he and was. He, it doesn't mean you have to love the protagonist. He, was, he followed his his uh, you know dry his basic his base drives, and there was nothing beneath the surface. Even his conversation was it was it was superficial. It was not really well thought out. He was borrowing from articles he had read. The guy was a, he was a fraud. I didn't say that I loved Lenny Castro. I'm just saying that look at the passion with which you are talking about him. He's a conversation well, piece. Yeah. And then let's talk about Sybil Shepherd. So I Please. mean, here's Sybil Shepherd, Sybil Shepherd. I mean, she's, she's cute as can be, but she was a very, she was almost like a dream character. She, right. had, she had, you know, she was just, she represented just his, his desire for what he didn't have. And even when at the end, when he was able to, can I, can I, yes. can I go? Yes. Spoiler even alert. when he was able, when he married her and possessed her at the end, he's sitting on the couch and already you see he's got, he's, he's not satisfied. But that's the best part. That's the reveal. And it was he is, he's, I, he's not a normal person and neither was Sybil Shepherd. No, no, she wasn't. But so, so Kelly. I mean, what did the what did the movie what did the movie give us? Oh, what did the movie give us? Didn't Just it the, make you laugh? No, but I'll tell you. But I have a new movie before we end. No, I'll no, no. But come on. How about the scene in the Denny's when she's eating egg salad and gets it on her face? Jeannie Berlin. Right. Wasn't she a tremendous actress? Yeah, like, that was good, and that was realistic. I mean, it was kind of classic Neil Simon, but nothing developed. It, to me, I give it a thumbs down. What about when he starts lying to her? I mean, if you want a movie for the most flagrant lying when he's making excuses for why he has to go meet a friend and there was a car accident. It was cringy. I know. I was cringing the whole movie at at, at him and his, his, his hapless, his hapless behavior. If you cringed at that, you must have really cringed at the pecan pie scene. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was. You didn't laugh at all. Uh, I don't know, Craig. I was, I was. um, I think you like that movie because Sybil Shepherd's cute. Well, I like that, but the way Eddie Albert, Eddie Albert reacted as the father. Oh yeah, which yeah, which was uh, totally appropriate. (laughs) He hated him. He hated his son-in-law. That was going to be a tough, uh, I think that was going to be a tough Christmas that those families would spend together. Wow, I can't believe you don't like my favorite comedy. I realized it was a comedy. It wasn't like I took it that seriously, but did you ever think, wow, what if you did get married and all of a sudden you realize it's all wrong you start discovering things? I mean, it's it's thought-provoking. It is. It is. It is. But it, and it did. It provoked a couple thoughts like at the very beginning. And then the rest of it was, you know, Sybil Shepherd. <laughs> I know. But, <laughs> and, but and an, Jeannie an Berlin, what's her name? Lila in it. That's great acting. You've got to say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was good. That was good. And, you know, I, I did it. I did kind of enjoy it. But anyway, it does not. I still say thumbs down on that. Can I just say if you want to laugh? Yes. yes. Okay. Walter Matthau, George Burns, The Sunshine Boys.
Have you seen it? Not for a long time, but I will watch it. And a lot of okay. people I said that my that. father, Sheldon, bore a resemblance to Walter Matthau, who I think, okay. and I'm not looking it up, he was Jewish, but he might have been from Pittsburgh. Charles Grodin is from Pittsburgh, from a religious Jewish family of rabbis. Did you know that? And you, well, know, what, you know what role he turned down that was so similar to the role he played in the Heartbreak Kit? The graduate. Yes. He turned down yes. Ben Braddock in that yep. launch Dustin Hoffman. Charles yep. Grodin toward the end was a pundit on MSNBC. He got real Ooh. political and I'm intrigued by the guy. I'm not saying I want to be Lenny Castro, far from it, but I just thought this is kind of a Michigana guy that's interesting yeah. to follow. All right. Well, I think I like you took it you took through. it too personal. <laughs> no. He was a Michigan guy, but I don't think he was interesting to follow. Well, how about when he stood up to that big, gigantic athlete on the University of Minnesota campus? That was a little different, and that that was commendable because that that took some balls to do that. But that was it. You know, that was the only real chutzpah he ever showed. Oh, I, I... and it was the only real creativity, I think. He ever, he ever, you know, show as far as the way he thought on his feet there. But, uh, but um, you'd have to acknowledge this. Wasn't it unpredictable? I mean, did you think he would really win the affection of Kelly no. and get to marry her? I did not. No, that was unpredictable. And that was, that was kind of cool that she came around. But, you know, you wondered why and you know, what was behind because their Because he was persistent. He was indefatigable. But then that scene after the wedding, when you realize he's never going to be satisfied. And isn't that the lesson? I mean, we both are blessed with beautiful wives, but you can see the most gorgeous woman and uh, yes. her spouse. And you say, he's probably tired of her. Right, right. No, no, no. I mean, you know, Neil Simon, you know, he, that's his. That's his style. That's that. That was his revelation. But you know, young men. Maybe I'm too old to watch that movie. That's that may be it. Right. Craig. I, I definitely right. saw it when I was young and single. Yeah. And thinking more right. about these things, but exactly. I can remember it vividly, and it's on YouTube for anybody to watch. And this has been Dave and Craig's movie reviews. <laughs> I'm now going to have to watch the Sunshine Boys. Is that by oh. Neil Simon too? Oh, I think I, so. No. I, oh, it is funny, and, and the the Jewish humor in that movie is is the best. Matthau is amazing. But uh, thank you, thank you, Craig. It's been fun. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Dave Gunders. Take care. Wow, what a great show! Who knew that Dave Gunders would take me on, challenging me about my favorite comedy, and kind of making me think that I need to mature. There are cringeworthy elements of the Heartbreak Kid, but some are so funny, and it just kept my attention, as did Trumbo, as did this show. Thank you to Michael Bailey for every week, this week when he visited the lounge especially. And then Michael Doherty, thanks to the Boulder DA for giving me a great hour. I know all these local DAs, and it's good to know these guys. They have a lot of power. And I appreciate you spending your time with me. Come back next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. 
Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.